Shalom bim Roma All right, good morning, everybody. We are here in the Gantt Chapel taping this on Wednesday morning, October the 18th, which is actually the morning after we had our rally and concert and fundraiser for Israel last night, Tuesday night, October the 17th. The war began on October 7th. Today it's October 18th, which would make it the basically 11th day of the war. And I wanted to begin even before the brachot with just a check-in, because I think that the check-in will help us connect to the Torah portion, which will really connect with our lives. So let me just, on day 11, on October 18th, um, how are you feeling and how are you processing the events of the world? Michelle, I'll start with you. Uh, broken. There is a pit in my stomach every minute of every day. Hmm. 
Dan? I'm petrified because it feels to me like until ground forces get into Gaza and start that ground war, this hasn't even really started yet. It's, it's, it's so frightening. Uh, Elias. Um, with all the sadness and the fear that you know we are all experiences, interesting enough, I feel more hopeful than yesterday. I think that the when we come together to pray and to talk, and it seems like we we support each other in a better way. And I feel more, you know, I, I finished last night with all the sadness and everything. I felt more uplifted. Mm -hmm. And then, without getting into politics. Uh, seeing our president in Israel today also gives me a lot of hope. Aliza. Uh, I sobbed all the way home last night. Um, hearing from the parents who were here last night talking about either leaving their partners with their little kids or being left with little kids and having their partner being away at war, I just, it breaks my heart, and I was just thinking last night about all the kids that don't get to hug their parents, and, and that continues to just be heart-wrenching for me. Every time I, you know, uh, every time I get up in the middle of the night with Ed, I think about all the little kiddos who are getting up in the middle of the night, and, and they don't get to be held, and they don't get to be hugged, and those parents who don't get to hold them and hug them because of this awful tragedy, and... Um, it just it continues to break my heart, and that's that's going to be true now, and that's going to be true for a long time. And last night, I was I was also thinking about when I was uh, living in Israel. I did a, a service project um, with Atsum Justice Works, and I was working with survivors of terror. And at that time, they were removed from the atrocities that their loved ones had experienced, or they had experienced by fifteen, twenty years. And they were still um, so traumatized and still so affected in every aspect of their life. Um, and seeing this happening in, in real time now, I just, I'm, I'm thinking about the pain of now and I'm also just thinking about the pain. This is gonna be pain for decades to come. Yeah, generational trauma, yeah. Wes, uh, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, well, first of all, just to piggyback on what you just said, uh, the two of the, the last speakers, the last two Israeli speakers, um, uh, Omri Atari and Talia Ben Sasson Gordas, um, both are now going to be, their, their families are going to be divided by this war, right? Because Omri told the unbelievable story of, you know, his wife and kids are in one of the nice W suburbs, Wayland, Weston, whatever, Westward, and he gave him a kiss goodbye, and they're nice, safe, and secure. And he is getting on an airplane to go face the tunnels and face Hamas. And that notion of kissing your wife and kids goodbye in Weston or Westwood and then going to the tunnels of Hamas is just utter darkness. And then, you know, Talia's husband, Avishai, is off uh, ready to fight the war. And she's raising their three kids, youngest 14 months old, by herself. So that's darkness. But to be honest with you, I'm even darker than that. Um, much darker than that, because last night, you know, I thought that the rally, uh, the concert was beautiful, and you guys sang beautifully, and the speaker spoke beautifully, and we had a lovely crowd, and I'm sure we raised some money, and then I go to sleep to unwind at the end of the day by hearing what's the latest news on the war, and the latest news on the war is that the West Bank is ready to convulse, and Hezbollah is ready to join, okay? So again, I didn't sleep very well, but um, this morning I'm listening to a segment on NPR, and I think I reached my darkest point yet, because the segment talked about um, what's happening on the West Bank. And the short, and, and you could actually hear it, so I, this is not biased reporting or, you know, anything. This is, I, I experienced this as true, um, okay, you could actually hear it, but basically settlers uh, aided with the army um, are doing revenge killings on innocent Palestinians in the West Bank. And, you, and, and, the, and then, and then um, you can actually hear the, the gunfire, and it's settlers who are, have been armed by the Israeli government with automatic rifles and all this other kind of things, and they're going and killing Palestinians. If you kill our people, we're gonna kill your people. And this, in, in one or two days, six Palestinians from this village were killed. And uh, the, the settlers are from this um, settlement called Eish Kodesh, Holy Fire. 
and they interview uh, this settler who's in his car, has got this rifle and that rifle and a Glock this and a Glock that. And, and they said to him, uh, you know, what, what's happening? And he says, um, you know, they killed babies. And there was absolutely no evidence of this at all. And they're so, so it's the army under Ben Gavir and settlers armed by Ben Gavir with rifles that are doing revenge killings on Palestinians. Um, and they ask, uh, and by the way, when you listen to this, your sympathies are definitely with the Palestinians. Definitely. I mean, it, and they said to this, well, this woman's actually an articulate speaker, she says, we don't want violence, we don't want what Gaza has, but if they're going to kill us, they're going to they're turn us into Gaza. They're going to turn us into Gaza. And then they asked this guy from Eish Kodesh, uh, and he says, um, you know, you, we have to kill the snake. We can't make peace if somebody wants to kill us. We've got to kill the snake. And the end of the report is they asked the woman from this Palestinian village, how do you think this is going to end? And she says, pure blackness, pure darkness. Uh, there's no end. It is good. And they asked this guy, and he says the same thing. And that's not even Gaza. That's the West Bank. And that's not even Lebanon, which is Hezbollah. So now, instead of just darkness about the, the, the tunnels of Hamas, and instead of just darkness with Hezbollah up north, um, we've got the darkness of the West Bank. And all against the backdrop, last night before our rally, I was teaching our seventh graders about the Declaration of Independence, uh, uh, May 14, 1948. And it talks about we're going to create this Jewish homeland that is going to be based on justice, truth, and peace, and consistent, consistently with the prophets of Israel. It actually says that. And you think about the dream, and you think about the reality, and that's where I'm at. So let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. And I think that Noah is going to give us at least, it doesn't, there's no answer here, but it's going to give us a lens uh, for, for darkness. So let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Baruch so I want to um, triple click on the end of the Noah story, the end of Noah's life, the coda, just so, just so that we're all on the same page. The Torah reading begins with the fact that the world, um, after the Breshit, the world that we begin with in Parshat Noah, Vatimalei Haaretz Hamas, the world was filled with Hamas. And Hamas, the commentaries say, is a certain kind of violence. And the violence of Hamas with which the world was filled was the violence of total disregard for human life. Um, and that Hamas, at the time of the Bible, had no regard for dignity of human life and would just easily kill people. And the story goes on to say that God says, I, I can't have this world, and I'm going to destroy this world. And we're going to pick out Noah and his family. So Noah, you all know the story. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives and all the animals, they survive. Okay? And at the end of the story, which is where we're going to pick up, uh, Noah is alive, and his, his loved ones are alive. And God has promised, actually multiple times at the end, not just once, but multiple times, never again. The first never again, the first never again is in Parshat Noah. And the first author of never again is God. And God says multiple times, never again, never again, never again, and there's a rainbow in the sky. So you think that Noah could wake up the morning after with God's promise of never again, and the first thing he's going to go to the gym, and the first thing he's going to make himself a delicious cappuccino, and the first thing he is going to start cooking something, he's going to get a Dean Assessment's book, Shabbat, and make some recipes, and celebrate life, and rebuild. And instead, we have a coda that is very different. So I want to just pick up with the coda. This is Noah and his family have all survived. The flood is over, and, and they now have a, a promise from God, never again is this going to happen. So I, it, this is on page 9 of the handout. I want to take the opportunity to read this one, 
because I just find this uh, endlessly evocative, and also it so speaks to our time. Noah, the tiller of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and he uncovered himself within his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a cloth, placed it against both of their backs, and walking backwards, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way, so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke up from his wine and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, so we'll pause, we'll get to the end of this saga, but it seems like what Noah does is instead of going to the gym and making a cappuccino and, and doing something positive, he gets drunk. He then does something inappropriate sexually. We don't know what it is, but it's inappropriate somehow sexually. And then um, he's got these three kids, Shem, Ham, uh, and Yafeth. And Ham sees something about his father, which is, you know, we don't know what it is, um, but it's inappropriate and embarrassing. And he tells his brothers about it, okay? And we don't know, you know, it could be in the spirit of a scurrilous tidbit. Oh my God, have I got scoop for you. You can't believe what dad did. Um, although that feels less likely. Um, we all have either have families or know of families or we're in the family where an adult parent is struggling and the adult children confer together often, right? I mean, this is a common trope, that the adult children are, you know, how's dad this week? Oh, my God, dad almost fell, or oh, my God, dad fell, or mom is kind of, uh, you know, mom is kind of losing things, or mom is, doesn't know what day it is. And kid, adult kids are talking amongst themselves. So it very well could be that Ham said, hey, brothers, you know, dad is, dad is really struggling, and here's what I saw, right? But, but we don't know exactly, but what we do know is that the other two brothers go out of their way to not see their father's nakedness, whatever that means. Noah wakes up, and here, just to frame the end, Noah doesn't curse Ham, the brother who sees and reports, but curses Ham's son, Canaan, the grandson, who's not even in the room. Not even in the room. He curses him, and not only does he curse him, he, he, the curse is to sow discord among the family. So here's how it ends. So when Noah woke up from his wine and learned what his youngest son, Ham, had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the son of Ham, um, that is his grandson, the lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the Lord of Shem, let Canaan be a slave to them. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a slave to them. Those are his last words. So in his last words is rage, anger, darkness, uh, picking on a grandson who wasn't even in the story, sowing discord, saying three times in the last line of his life, I want my grandson to be a slave to you guys. My last line is a civil war among brothers, and then he dies. And then what you learn is the coda to the coda Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah came to 950 years, then he died. In other words, one-third of his life was lived in bitterness, acrimony, discord, and disaster. And he dies angry, rageful, broken, and with a completely broken family. End of the story. And this is for the guy who survives the flood. So, dear colleagues, what is going on with Noah, and what does that teach us about us? Well, at the beginning of the Parsha, we have, um, there's a hint of that where God, where God says that all of mankind is evil, right? So even after, he did, even after everything is destroyed, um, that evil still exists, that, um, that brokenness still exists. Um, okay, but there seems to be, there seems to be something very deep and psychological going on here, mm -hmm. that a survivor of destruction could end up so destructive. I, I've always read this text as the Torah's guide to PTSD. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact is that when you, and we see this again and again in, in survivors of the Shoah, we see this in their families as the echo. You talk about the next generation of those who 
went through the trauma of the Holocaust, they also are carrying the wounds with them because their parents could, could never completely get away from having seen that horror in their lives and they carry it with them. Um, to me, I think Noah here is both so human, both so relatable and, and also so, um, so much of a cautionary tale to us as well um, because he's broken. He's broken by the echoes of, of hearing what was going on beyond the waters of the flood. He, he can't escape that. And he tries to escape that by getting drunk, by abusing his body, by, um, you know, running away from, from those horrible memories. And that has always seemed instructive to me of how we ought not to handle our trauma. Um, and what happens in that family dynamic is so mysterious. You point out the rabbis say is some awful, horrible sexual impropriety that went on there. But I think even without that, just even if you look at the And by the simple, way, there's no other person there. It's not correct. like it's not like some other human left the room. Right. Um, there's right. It's, it's not like there's some other human being who was involved in this. Right. So whatever sexual impropriety, from what we know, it just involved right. Noah. Right. So so. So, but even if you even if you put aside that really dark and traumatic vision that the rabbis have of what happens, right? Remember, his Noah's son has also been through the trauma right. of this moment. But let's let's even put that aside and just read the pshat that somehow Noah's nakedness is uncovered. What if his nakedness is his vulnerability, his 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 lack of being able to to move forward to manage this situation, and then it suddenly makes sense. His 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 rage here makes sense because you know the old expression that that parents sometimes use. You know, may your child grow up someday to be just like you. Right. Right. And and this sense of having been violated by being seen in all of not only his literal nakedness, but his emotional nakedness for the, the smallest part of who he is, not, not the largest. And then having gone and told the other siblings, right? Oh, our father's not all that, right? Our father actually doesn't have the tools to help us get through this. We can't learn anything from him. In some sense, you could potentially read Noah's curse as a variation of that. May you come experience what I have experienced as a betrayal from you that your son, your child will have, will do to you what my child has done to me. And, and that carries on the generational trauma that we, you know, at, at, from our very beginning, mm. all of us as Jews carry. So, it, so I just understand, understand your comment. Sorry, that's super, no, no, super, no, why, because the, the question that a reader might ask is, why are you schlepping Canaan into this? He didn't do anything. Why are you schlepping your grandson into this? And your read is, is basically, may you have a son who is unkind to you as you have been to me. May you know filial ingratitude, but, like I know or, from or you. May, may you suffer from your child the way as I'm I have suffered from, from mine, mine. Namely you. Correct. And, and, and that sets in motion one of the most corrosive instincts of our yeah. human spirit, which is to continue to visit our trauma, whether our intentionally or unintentionally, yeah. on our children. I have another read on this text. Um, I agree with you about the whole idea of him being really hurt for the experience and traumatized, and then doing whatever he wants with his body, and that is his own decision of that. The, re the, re the regarding about the grandson, the Canaan, I see it differently. I see it as, um, I remember vividly, my dad grew up in a, in a, he was the youngest of seven siblings, and they were a poor family. So the house didn't have enough rooms. I think I told this story. They didn't have enough rooms, so my dad, as a child, used to sleep on the kitchen table. Okay, there was a long kitchen table. He used to sleep there. They used to put some cushions and stuff for him. And he would joke with us, with my brother and I, you don't know what you have. You know, you have a bed. 
I didn't have a bed, jokingly. But this could be also seen as something that in the story that it's missing here, that he believes that Canaan is not really appreciating what he has. Could be that, could be that he doesn't care about friendship when, when, Cain, when, when Noah lost everybody. He lost everybody, family and not the close family, but family, friends, everything you can imagine. So I see it more towards that, but we don't know because it's not part of the story. Can I just thank you, Elias and Dan and Michelle. I just want to add one other uh, angle to deepen the conversation and then Lisa, love your voice, which is um, why end by sowing discord among my kids? It's like my last act is I want my children to hate each other's guts. I want, my, I want my children to hate each other's guts. You will be a slave. Your son will be a slave. Your son will be a slave. Your son will be a slave. Goodbye. And, and, and it, can you think about just n not just the internecine, you know, not just uh, may you have a child that does to you what you did to me, and not just that, you know, your grandson doesn't know how, how good he has it, but why the slave business, and why as my last act, Let's sow discord. Let's have a civil war. Why, why that, Aliza? Uh, so I think there's a way to read it a little differently. And, and Michelle and I, I both really appreciate your, your reads here. Um, for me, it feels like if we take out the emotion and we just look at the actions here, we have one child who is eyes forward to vulnerability, to nakedness. We have two children who do every, they go backwards with a blanket behind them to not see that vulnerability. And then... Noah's instruction is for the descendants of those who see vulnerability, they will be slaves. They will not have agency. They will not be able to direct their own action. They're going to be slaves to those who chose not to see vulnerability. And so I see this as a, as a, a text about mm. fake it till you make it. Do not be vulnerable. Keep your back to vulnerability. Be strong. Be looking away. And if you're somebody that's going to be super dialed into vulnerability, if you're going to be focusing in on the trauma, if you're going to be focusing in on how your people couldn't manage in that moment of, of difficulty, then you can't function in the world. You're going to have to be a slave to those who can mm. turn their backs on vulnerability because that's what it's going to take. If you're not going to move through the world with survivor's guilt, you're going to have to let that pain go and move forward without looking at it. Otherwise, you'll be a slave. Well, or yeah, because yeah. the opportunity, if, you, if, you're, if you're slave to the vulnerability, you, you can't. Yeah, that is weakness. Seeing vulnerability is weakness. And I, I, I don't think it's a good read. I, right, I, no, I no, no, no. I think this but is a bad read, but I think this is no. for Noah. He's like, you can't, you can't be me. I can't function in the world. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop doing these bad things. I, I cannot function. And if you're going to do that, you're also not going to be able to function. I'm going to set you up. And you read slavery not as we see slavery also in the Bible as what happens when you can't provide for yourself as you can choose Abedim, to become enslaved. That you become, right. Because not because you want to be enslaved, but because you need that financial support. This is emotional support right. slavery. Right. And I just want to note one last thing about the story, and then we pivot to our own broken world, which is it's so, it's so interesting about how an event that seems so big at the time then seems 100 years away. Like for us clergy, like getting through the holidays just seems so, you know, we spend July, August, and September thinking about getting through the holidays. And then, you know, on October 7th, the holidays were 100 years ago. Like Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, who even cares? It was like 100 years ago. Or COVID. When we lived through COVID, COVID was like COVID, COVID, COVID. We'll never get out of COVID. And now COVID literally feels like ancient history. Um, and th there's a way in which the present supersedes the past. There's a way in which the present supersedes the immediate past in ways that makes it feel like ancient history, even though it was like yesterday. And what, what strikes me about this story is, you know, most of us associate Noah with, uh, with the flood. Um, and, if, and, and here he is, uh, you know, he, he survives the flood and his wife and kids survive the flood. And the fact that they survived the flood is just totally yesterday's news. It's like COVID. It's like last year's holidays. It's a million years ago. And he spends the last 30 years of his life, he spends the last 300 years of his life, but he spends the last third, a chunk of his life, where the whole ark thing was like 100 years ago and ancient history. And where he's living in the present is in brokenness, misery, drunkenness, sexual impropriety, sowing discord. And, and I'm wondering if you could comment on that, just the fact that the coda is actually a chunk of his life, at the third of his life. 
And what do we what do we learn from that? Well, if we're thinking the, thinking about this in relation to the concept of P, PTSD, um, you think about the fact that you you see oftentimes a lot of veterans that might have been that had they were war heroes. They threw themselves on a grenade. They they carried people out of a war zone, and then they come back here, and then the for the most of the rest of their lives, they're they're at the VA. Um, all the time and unable to cope with with reality mm. and I think that that could be part of what's going on with Noah that the flood for him the flood never ended mm. the destruction never ended it's still in his mind and he can't get past that right. now the, the other question about how how that translates into his his trying to sow discord in his family I have no idea um, well I think there's uh, another way to be and and we often from our ancestors, from our families, from our teachers, learn as much from, from what they do wrong as from what they do right. So I feel like Noah, because he is not able to, pro he, he can't figure out how to process what he's been through. He, he has no therapist, he has no um, you know, EMDR, he doesn't get to um, figure out a constructive way. And, and maybe there's no constructive way, I don't know. You know it's very hard to know what your internal reality is like when you've survived the destruction of the entire world. Um, but I think here it's possible that if you find some way to work on that trauma, if you are a soldier and you figure out, you know, training dogs or, or working to help others or being, you know, brothers in arms and supporting other injured soldiers, if you are able to channel that pain and, and do something constructive with it and do something towards healing the world, then maybe your life doesn't just be, you know, 350 years of this destructive behavior over and over and over and over again. Mm. But when, you, when you're so into that vulnerability, when all you can do is look at your own vulnerability over and over <laughs> again, then, you're, then your life just becomes yeah. that. And, so. also, and also the, there is a reason why, in a way, you know, we, we have Sidurim, we have Maxorim, and except for the, the parts in the, in the Sidur that are written when we read about him, zero prayers about Noah, right? Am I right? Zero yeah. prayers about Noah. We yeah. don't have him as one of the highest, one of our yeah. patriarchs, one of our idols. It's like a common guy who had one, perhaps, if you look at it, the whole is like one event that was incredible, but then not such a yeah. great life. And so uh, let me, let me, what I want to do now is, is pivot from the darkness of Noah's soul. So it really, when you look at the story, to me, what, what resonates most in, the, in this year of 5784 and this year of 2023 is the darkness of Noah's soul, the darkness of his soul, the inner soul, the torment of his soul. And I'm wondering if I could just ask the broad question, um, how does this darkness of his soul intersect with this dark moment in Israel? And, and, and how, what are the connections you see? We've talked about trauma, generational trauma, parents and children passing trauma down. I'd love to just invite a conversation around how to look at the terrible events of this war through the lens of generational trauma and brokenness. So, Aliza, you framed this response of Noah at the end as a sort of a what not to do. This is our recipe for how not to be. And I wonder, in light of what we're going through, whether um, Noah is actually a response to, an appropriate response um, to what is that actually the kind of devastation that Noah witnesses cannot help but overwhelm a soul, Can, that, that we must be broken facing these types of horrors that he faces. And, and today, I mean, certainly in Israel today, you can look around, you can't imagine how any single human looking at what is, uh, at what, is what was, and, and unfortunately what looks like may be, how the, the devastation of that flood, we see people who similarly are responding with fury, with anger, with cursing, um, that, that is actually a real human response to this moment. And, and we see people who are doing their best to move through their last, you know, so may it be 300 years, right? But, but whatever it is that they have in their life. Um, and, 
and moving with brokenness that, that never resolves, that never leaves. I was thinking about Micha Goodman's teaching from, like you say, it seems so long ago from last year where he said, if only we could have a pause, if only we could have a generation where they have not personally experienced the trauma of their loved ones being killed, and we have not experienced the trauma of our loved ones being killed, could we build a better world? And, and here we are again amidst a cycle that, that, that seems impossible to fulfill that, that dream of, of Micha's, that dream of, of a world where we did not see the, the generation of the, of the flood, the Hamas. So what I hear you saying, Michelle, is that in an ideal world, we would love the actors making decisions on Israel's behalf now to be sane, rational, grounded, and have a bit of distance so that they're not making it from trauma, from pain, from rage, from a world of curse. Um, and that people who are sane, grounded, and rational make better and wiser decisions than people who are suffused with sorrow and rage and anger and curse. And what we have now is really on both, obviously, for sure, for Hamas, it goes without saying, just vengeance and rage and curse, but now also query whether our own side, beloved Eretz Israel, is now is, is too close and too raw and is kind of their own version of Noah post-flood without the chance for healing. And therefore, you know, the, the decisions are not going to be as wise and the results and outcomes are not as helpful. Yeah, but, but it's, it, I mean, to be, with all fairness, I think it's easy for us to, to, to have that point of view and we are not in their shoes and we don't have, you know, we haven't seen the ones next to us killed. Oh, yeah. No, and that, that's I'm why not, this text yeah. matters right. so yeah. much because it informs right. not, exactly nobody is, that. We're not criticizing, we're raising money for, but we're, I'm just, I, I also want to say, I also want to say that, um, and not to talk politics, but Ben Gavir encouraging settler violence and Ben Gavir encouraging the army to support settler violence and Ben Gavir encouraging Israelis to do revenge killings of innocent Palestinians um, is also brokenness, Noah style, um, and it's just going to create incredible darkness, more darkness even than, more darkness than is already in the picture. That's why I began when, when we did our check-in. We're all dark. I was triple dark because I had heard that story about revenge killings. Um, I believe it. I believe it. Um, and I think that also comes, that kind of, you know, like, that's, that's a society that is uh, not well. Our own society, Israel, our own beloved Israel is not well and it's not making good decisions. Um, not being critical of them, I can't even begin to understand what it would be like, but, but, but if the response is, let's kill their innocent people too, and I'm not talking about Gaza, I'm talking about the West Bank, oh yeah. Elisa, say something helpful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think that, you know, this is a, a haunting story also because our kids are taught to love it in a very creepy, you know, the animals by twosies, twosies. Right. But um, when you sing that song enough, you start to notice that at the end of the story, there's a missing twosies, right? You, you go onto the ark and it's Noah and his wife and all of his children and their wives and all the animals went in pairs of twos all the way onto the ark. And the end story, you have ones. You have Noah and his sons, and there's no women, and there's no families intact. It's all broken apart. And I think that speaks to the importance of coming together. Um, this morning I was reading Danny Gordas's blog about um, Israelis coming together, that after all of this intensity and all of this infighting and all, you know, spitting at each other on Yom Kippur and screaming at each other on buses and all of this, you know, the, the fabric of, the, of Israeli society that had been fraying and tearing and um, people are, you know, there are Orthodox Haredi women who are joining together to, to do Shabbat dinners and meals and childcare and there's across, you know, it's volunteers who are working to support the families who have uh, hostages who've been taken because the government can't be there for them and there, there are people just stepping up in incredible ways and I think that 
what we don't see in the end of the story is is the family coming together. And I think that's a really important, it's not just our family. There used to be a, a project in Israel called Sulcha, which is a, um, Sulcha is, a, is an Arabic tradition where when two families have been wronged, when there's, and they, they talk about two families being wronged, when there's been a murder, they talk about those two families, the victim family and the, and the, the murderers, Perpetrator. thank you, yeah. the perpetrator's family, are tied. And what they do in these, in these families is they have a sulcha, which is like a 15-course meal that both families, the entire extended family, sits down for this meal. And they have to sit down and, and they go through the pain and they go through the brokenness, 15 courses, or eight, I forget how many exactly courses, a lot of courses. And by the end of that meal, you're able to move forward without any revenge killings. And so there was, for a while in Israel, an organization. And when I lived there in 2011, 2012, I, I got to go to a sulcha, and they were having them, these big global meals where Arabs and Jews and Palestinians and Israelis would all come together and have these meals. And the idea was that you you have to, to come together to get it together, that you have to be together in order to solve these things. And I think we're really, we're missing that, which is that what's happening as this war is unfolding, we're becoming more and more torn apart. We're having more and more revenge killings. We're having more and more violence. It's not about coming together in, in pursuit of peace. We're, we're falling apart, and so it's really hard to come together. It's nearly impossible to come together, but how do we as a, as a society figure out what we need to do? And that's not just Israel, right? That's a global society. That's Biden who's showing up. I'm really grateful that you brought that because we as a world community have to step in and also be present not to, to police what Israel can and can't do, but to say we're with you. This is super painful and we, we want to be by your side. We want to be with you as you navigate these murky waters. So in the, uh, let me just close this out by asking the following question. In the week of Parshat Noah. Um, what do you see, you know, in a, w in a week in which our reading is about Hamas, it's about violence, and it's about violence that is marked by disregard for the sanctity of human life, and in which the coda is what we've studied. What is the main message to Israel and to those of us here who love Israel? What do we take away from Noah in the year of the war? Um. What I see here, I, I, the, to me, it, it ends with a question. Uh, I'm not saying anything new. You all know that Israel and Jewish people around the world are fighting two wars. The physical one over there and the rest of the world that doesn't believe for a second any of our narrative. They don't believe anything that we say. They could side with us about the innocents that were killed, but nothing that we can tell them will will make them feel like oh yes you're right nothing you see it everywhere every country in the world who has a jewish presence you see that so it's two words so to me the question relationship with the with this noah story is with all that negativity and feeling that you cannot talk to anybody to try to come on to make sense with anybody how do we avoid becoming noah in his last third of his life. Yeah, so I think, you know, we point out the curses because that just jumps out, it's so painful. But there are also two blessings here. And Elisa, I almost have an opposite read of your sense of that you're cursed to be a slave because you see the vulnerability, because you're targeted at the vulnerability. Uh, for me, I see that one who cannot be sensitive to the vulnerability who cannot say, I see you are suffering and I'm gonna hold up a shield to that, um, that is in itself the, the curse. That, that those who, like, like Shem and Yafet, who are able to be strong and to do the right thing while maintaining their sensitivity to their father's vulnerability, those are the ones who receive the blessing. And so, to me, what stands out, Yossi Klein Halevi wrote this week, um, left-wing Jews need to understand that the Jewish people cannot afford the purity of powerlessness, while right-wing Jews need to understand that power requires moral limits. Wow. Yeah, um, this is really complex. We need to, as human beings and, and in, as part of this conflict, we need to live on a different plane. From the beginning, 
from the beginning, mankind has not been good to each other. We have, you know, we have the first family, we start with, with murder. And then the next thing that we have is, is, is Hamas. And then the next thing we have is the brokenness. And then the next thing that we have is the story of, of our ancestors, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and the brokenness in their families. And what I think the whole Torah is a cautionary tale of trying to live the human condition, but trying to take it up to another level. And I don't, we don't know where and how that's possible, but every day we need to say, we need to hold ourselves in check and try to be uh, high, higher than we, than we can be. Mm. So I want to end by just saying again, I don't have a bow and gift wrap here. Um, I am worried in a way that I've never been worried in my 62 years about the future of Israel. Um, and and in, in, in a scary and eerie way, the way the Noah story ends, not happy but sad, not whole but broken. He dies with a world of discord and strife and his only peace is dying because the world he's left behind is just so broken. And I just deeply worry that that's where we are and, and where we're headed. I deeply worry about our courageous soldiers going into Gaza, into the hellhole, into the tunnels. I deeply worry about Hezbollah even more. Everything you read is they're even worse. And then I deeply worry about Ben Gavir and his minions and the army and the settlers, giving them all, you know, Glock rifles, hunting down innocent Palestinians. And what happens if Israel has a three-front war? And because of the intensity of that all, the kind of therapy and healing and distance, and ground, they, they, they all need to go to Canyon Ranch for many years, and there's no Canyon Ranch. Um, and so all I can do is be worried and pray. And I, I suppose the, uh, what we have that Noah did not have is this space, the Gan Chapel. Uh, and, 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 and just praying for Israel uh, is, uh, you know, we, we, we try to raise money. Today is the day after the big fundraiser. There was so much energy about raising money and et cetera. And now it's the day after the fundraiser. And hopefully we raise money. I mean, um, the CJP speaker, Jennifer Weinstock, said that Boston and from, from October 7th to now raised $40 million, which is remarkable, $40 million, which is fantastic. And, and, um, and essential, and I hope we contributed a lot to it, and still all these problems. And so that's where I'm left with all these problems, and at least thank God this space to, to pray on these problems. Yes, Elisa. I just want to say I'm, I'm really holding Micha's Torah because Micha spoke to rabbis this week and talked about that we have to have the humility that we don't know all that will unfold. And I, I just want to come back to the Noah story, which is we're missing half of the characters in the Noah story at the end. So it is doom and destruction and darkness. That is what is in our text. But there's half of the people that are that are still alive there are missing. And I'm I'm holding on to the hope and the prayer that they're off putting together Shabbos meals and taking care of kids and doing good works to make sure that we're all on track for a better world tomorrow. Amen. Amen, Amen. to that. Amen. Thank Amen. you, friends. Thank you.